0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Colossians 3 is our text. Uh, open your Bibles there if you haven't already. Colossians 3, 1-13. through 13, We're really only going to spend time in just uh, those, a couple of last verses in that passage. Uh, we are concluding our series on peacemaking today. Blessed are the peacemakers... Those are the words of Jesus himself from uh, the book of Matthew. We've been doing this for three Sundays, started three Sundays ago, and so we're concluding today. We've been uh, looking at the Scriptures, of course, first and foremost, but we've also been getting some insight, wisdom, and guidance from this book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict by Ken Sandy. Um, Once again, let me recommend it to you. There are copies on our book table. Uh, I'm just kind of scratching the surface in these three sermons. There's a lot more information in this book for you, uh, if this is something that you're interested in. <clears throat> so I would recommend that book to you. Now you might have been asking. Uh, I addressed this a little bit in the first sermon, but you might be asking, "Why are we doing this sermon series? Is this is this church in trouble somehow? <laughs> you know, is this a is this a place full of conflict? Um, no, it, it's not." <laughs> And uh, we've been very blessed, and uh, a spirit of peace has prevailed in this place for, for quite a while, uh, even given the little individual skirmishes that happen in every body of believers. But God has been gracious. This has been a place of, of peace. But as I mentioned a couple Sundays ago, we're about to go into a new phase of life of this church with a new building coming up, planning to church plant, um, some increased budgets in the coming years and uh, when things get mixed up a little bit, when big changes happen, it's a great opportunity for Satan to get a foothold and to turn us against each other, to turn us from peacemakers into peace breakers as we push our own agendas and are insensitive to the feelings and views of others. And for others, we turn into peace fakers. That is, we're the ones who are offended, but we don't want to deal with it. We don't like conflict, so we pretend everything is okay when it's not, and these grudges begin to develop in our hearts, and we draw away from one another. So we're seeking to be peacemakers here, not peace breakers and not peace fakers. But another reason why we're doing this is I'm quite sure that probably all of you have been in the past and probably are right now experiencing some kind of interpersonal conflict with somebody somewhere. Um, you are estranged, perhaps, from loved ones. There's a coldness in some relationships where there was once warmth. There might even be outright hostility between you and somebody else. So, uh, a lot of good reasons for doing this series. Well, let me take you for through a short review about where we have been so far. <clears throat> we started two Sundays ago with a message on getting the log out of your eye. That's the first step when we are in conflict with somebody else. We've been offended. First thing we should do, according to Jesus, is look at ourselves, see what log is in our own eye, and take care of that first before we go trying to confront others about their sin. So that was two Sundays ago. And then last week we talked about gently restoring What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 is if you get the log out of your eye and you still know that there is someone who has offended you, sinned against you, then you have a responsibility to approach that person, to seek to restore that person. What Jesus says is to show that person his fault. And that's hard to do, but it's what Jesus commands us to do as his people. And throughout the rest of the passage, he gives us some steps about how to deal with that. You can listen to these sermons online if you haven't already, if you're interested. But here's what's going to happen very possibly after you go through these first two steps. Get the log out of your eye, challenge somebody about the sin that is in their life, and what very often might happen at that point is that you will find that the person will acknowledge their sin and confess it to you. And when that happens the whole situation turns back on you. You know, sometimes I think when, when we think about this notion of forgiveness, we, we think, you know, what happens if I confess or, or if I confront somebody and they refuse to confess? Now, that's a hard situation for sure. What do you do when someone doesn't say anything? But I'm not so sure that that's, that that's as hard as the requirement that is placed on us when we confront somebody and they do confess. (laughs) Because when they do, that means you got to forgive. I mean, no matter how deep the hurt is, if they're going to repent, if they're going to confess, now the ball's in your court. And isn't it true that there's something kind of insidious in us where we challenge somebody and there's something in us that kind of hopes they don't confess? Because if they don't, then we don't have to forgive, and we can hang on to that grudge. But if they do confess, well, you've got a job to do. That is, you have to forgive, and that's not easy. And As an example of that, there's a, a guy named uh, Simon Wiesenthal, who is a Holocaust survivor. He spent uh, a lot of his life tracking down uh, Nazi criminals, calling them to justice. He's written a book called The Sunflower, and in the book he describes a situation where he was in a concentration camp, and uh, it was in Poland, and there was uh, a day where a particular group that he was involved in was taken out of the camp. They were taken into the, the city, the town, where they were going to do some work, and when they got into the town, a nurse came and got Simon and pulled him out of the line and said, come with me. And he was scared to death, didn't know what was going to happen, but she ended up <clears throat> leading him to a hospital and led him down a hall and into a room where there lay on the bed uh, an injured man with bandages over his eyes. He couldn't see. And it became apparent that this man was, was a Nazi. He was a member of the SS. And he was badly injured, only had a couple days to live. And he called on this nurse to go find a Jew so that he could apologize and confess to this, to this Jew. And so there's Simon, and he's sitting there <clears throat> talking to this man, and this man starts talking about all of these atrocities that he was involved in, all the ways, just horrible things that, that he had done. And, and he says, you know, I just can't die in peace unless I can confess what I've done to a Jewish person and, and receive forgiveness. Would you please do that? And the story just goes on and on, and the guy keeps reaching out for Simon's hand, and Simon pulls his hand away, and he just listens and listens and listens, and he's going through this battle in his, in his mind, what am I going to do? And in the end, he gets up, and he walks out, and he doesn't say a word. And he comments many times about how he was totally convinced that this Nazi was genuinely repentant. Said said, I could tell he was truly sorry for all that he had done. But, but he said this, Did a man of this kind deserve anybody's pity? And his conclusion was no. And maybe you felt that way about whoever it is who's offended you in your life. Does a person like that deserve my pity? That um, spouse who left you, that boss who fired you, that classmate who bullied you, that parent who abused you, that business partner who cheated you, that friend who betrayed you, do they deserve your pity? Well, this book, very interesting, Simon tells this story. The second half of the book is just a collection of, of responses from various philosophers, pastors, priests, sociologists who give their own perspective about what <clears throat> Simon Wiesenthal should have done in that situation. There's a Catholic priest who said uh, you should have forgiven him because that would have been an opportunity for superhuman goodness. He said, you missed an opportunity for superhuman goodness. I don't really like that phrase, superhuman goodness, but, but I will say forgiveness is a tremendous opportunity. I mean, it, it, Here's the way I would say it. The opportunity to forgive is an opportunity for you to give others a taste of supernatural grace that they might not have ever experienced in their lives. And if you're in a position where you're being called on to forgive, there, there's, there's great opportunity there. It's not easy, but there's opportunity. So let's, let's look at this. Um, <clears throat> there's a call here in Colossians to forgive. So we're going to look at just this concept of forgiveness. Paul addresses a lot of stuff here, but the first thing we need to look at is, is what is forgiveness? What, what needs to take place in forgiveness? What, what, is forgive, what, is, what forgiveness is not? We're going to talk about this here. Uh, George already gave us a, a good little introduction about <clears throat> Colossians written by Paul. Um, to this church, which is in modern-day Turkey, actually now, and what Paul's is doing is giving directions for, for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, he's telling them how we, as a church, how we need to live. He's uh, drawing attention to the fact that we are God's chosen ones. In verse twelve, we're holy and beloved. That we've been chosen out of the world for a specific purpose. We're called to be this alternative society that is different than the world, markedly, strikingly different Uh, in the world. We know that there is um, the world thrives on conflict. There's political conflict and cultural conflict and religious conflict and racial conflict all over the place. Um, The the world's way of handling conflict is to to get revenge, to look out for number one, to not let people get away with their wrongdoing. Um, But look at verse 11. Paul says, here, however, I mean, that, that word I think is very important, here, here, in the church, in the household of God, it's different. This is a different kind of place. This is a, a, a new community that's being formed where there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in and, and all. Now, each of these groups are present in this church. Uh, apparently. And so uh, Paul is aware of the, re- the, uh, the racial differences. There's Greek and Jew. He's aware of the religious differences, spiritual differences, circumcised and uncircumcised. He's aware of the socioeconomic differences. There's slave and there's free. Uh, the barbarian, the Scythian, these are people who are just the lowest rung on the social ladder, people regarded as savages by uh, kind of an elitist Greek culture. Uh, You can see how you get a group of people together with these kinds of differences, how the opportunity for conflict would would be um, very apparent. But what Paul says here is, even though you have all these differences, even though you're not the same in so many ways, you are, verse 12, to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you are to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, And and the way that you do that, the way that you put on these virtues is in two ways. Verse 13, number one, bearing with one another. That word bearing means to, to put up with or to undergo something troublesome without giving up. That's what that word means. So we bear, we bear with troublesome people without giving up on them. We bear with them. And then the second way that we put on these virtues in verse 12 is if we have a complaint against each other, forgiving each other. So bearing with one another one, forgiving each other two. Those are the two ways that we put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And that word for complaint, is, it's a very broad word. It might say grievance in your translation. It's, it's a broad word that can mean a whole number of things. It's like what Paul is saying is that any complaint that you have... No matter how small or how big or how unusual it might be, it's a very broad, all-encompassing category, any complaint, you need to be prepared to forgive, to forgive the grievances you have against one another. Well, that begs this question then. This is kind of where we're going to park here in verse 13, forgiving each other. What, What does it mean to forgive? Because there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think, about what it actually means to forgive, what forgiveness actually looks like. So, just a few points here saying what forgiveness is not so that some misunderstandings in your mind might be be dispelled. What, What forgiveness is not? First of all, forgiveness is not instantaneous. What I mean by that is that it's not something that you just do at one time and then you're done with it. Forgiveness is an event, but it's also a process. And I think that's in the text because that word forgiving is in the present tense, and all that means is that it has a sense of something that's done on an ongoing basis, something that's unceasing. Uh, There is a tense in the Greek where it could say something that happens in a a moment in time, but that's not what's indicated here that this is something that's ongoing so what that means is that when you forgive somebody at one point in time what's probably going to happen is a week a month maybe even years later certain memories are going to come to mind about what that person did to you and those things are going to start seeping into your heart and you're going to start to harden again and every time that happens you've got to forgive again and the week after that, those memories come back. Somebody says something, it reminds you, you see a movie, you hear a song, it reminds you of those things. You've got to forgive again. And over and over again, it's got to happen. You have the opportunity. You're cranky. You're tired. And here's this person. They're kind of displaying some of these same behaviors, and you want to lash out again, restrain your lips out of an effort to once again forgive. So forgiveness is not instantaneous. It's a process. It's an ongoing act. Forgiveness is also not excusing. It's not excusing. We're not saying that what a person has done, if they've offended you or sinned against you, we're not saying that it's, that it's trivial or, or not sinful. You know, sometimes we say, when someone confesses to us, we say, well, that, that's okay. That's okay. And, you know, it's not like that's a wrong thing to say, but you know, there's a sense in which, well, it's really not okay. <laughs> they sinned against you. That's not okay. Uh, you can forgive that person, but forgiveness in biblical terms does not require minimizing the, the sin because that might be a question that you have. Well, if I forgive this person, isn't that going to make me a doormat? Isn't that just going to kind of open the door for me to be taken advantage of if I forgive that person? Well, no, no, it doesn't have to, because remember what we heard last week in Matthew 18, if someone sins against you, what do you do? You go and show the person his fault, and if that person won't listen, what do you do? You just excuse it, say, oh, that's okay? No, you go get somebody else, and you go to the person again. And if they don't listen, then what do you do? Then you say, well, can't do anything about it, that's okay? No, you go to the church, and you bring the church into it. That's not excusing sin. But it doesn't mean that forgiveness is not present. Forgiveness and not excusing can coexist. A third thing that forgiveness is not, it's not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, it is true in the Bible that it says that God will forget your sins, not remember your sins. But but friends, we're not to take that literally. God doesn't literally forget your sins. If He forgot something that happened, He wouldn't be omniscient, would He? There'd be something that He would be ignorant of. I mean, that's not the God that we know. He doesn't literally forget. And I would say it's impossible for you to actually forget completely the hurts and the pains that have been inflicted upon you. So you don't have to feel like, well, I'm mindful that this thing happened, therefore I guess I'm not forgiving. No, that's not true. Um. That those memories will probably be with you for the rest of your life, possibly. But, in fact, this is what makes forgiveness so extraordinary. It's, it's when you extend the forgiveness while you still remember what was inflicted against you. That's what makes grace so, so amazing. You're offering that mercy when you're aware of what happened. So, to forgive is not to expel from your memory forever. But then, lastly, forgiveness <coughs> is not... A feeling, (coughs) excuse me, a feeling. And there are a number of others in the Peacemaker book, other other examples of what forgiveness is not. But Forgiveness is not a feeling. In other words, it's not something that we do because we feel like it, or it's not something that we refrain from doing until we feel like it. Nobody feels like forgiving someone who has wounded you and offended you in a deep and grievous way. Nobody feels like forgiving that. This is not something we can do in our own natural power. This is something that is supernatural. It requires a supernatural act of God in our hearts to do this. It's something that we have to choose to do before the feelings are, are present. But what I want to encourage you to think about is this is I think that when you decide to forgive, that feelings will quite possibly follow. The feeling of forgiveness will often follow. As an example of this, I shared this last time I preached on this topic, I don't know, a year and a half ago, but I just think this sums it up so well. I told the story of Carla Faye Tucker, who was a woman in Texas who murdered two people and was convicted of those crimes, was executed in 1998. She became a Christian while she was in prison and um, has a a really wonderful testimony about the grace of God in her life. But... um, uh, the brother of one of her victims was filled with rage and anger against her. Just He hated this woman and wanted to kill her and was thinking about ways to do it. And then somebody gave him a Bible and he read it and he became a Christian, became saved and decided that he needed to go and talk to Carla Faye Tucker. Well, he happened to know that she was, I think, in a courthouse for some kind of a hearing, so he knew where she would be. He went to the courthouse and he walked down the hall and he saw this woman who killed his brother and he said he walked up to her and and he said I want you to know that I forgive you and he said at that point he said that's when all the anger and rage was lifted it wasn't before he went to offer forgiveness it was after the feelings followed this act of his will. So what is forgiveness? It's, it's a decision. It's a decision that you make. I'm going to forgive this person. Here's how Ken Sandy defines it. To forgive someone means to, I would say, make this decision to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. That, that's forgiveness. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to put an end to this desire in my heart to punish this person for what he or she has done. And it's a decision that I'm going to make, knowing it's going to be a process, knowing that I'm not excusing that sin, I'm going to call him on it, knowing that I'll probably never forget it, and knowing that I don't really feel like it. But here's what I'm going to do, and there's four things that Ken Sandy gives here for us to do. Here's how you really forgive. You say, the decision to forgive is to say, I will not dwell on this incident I'm not going to turn it over on my mind over and over again. I'm not going to meditate upon it. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to talk to others about it. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to drag you down when I'm talking to my friends. And I'm not going to let this incident hinder our relationship. I'm not going to allow it to interfere with the affection and the warmth that should exist. This is what forgiveness looks like. This is what it is, a decision to do these four things. But then <clears throat> we have to consider this even further, just still sticking with this passage, forgiving each other here in verse 13. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about how this actually happens. Um, because there's going to be all sorts of reasons to withhold forgiveness that will come uh, to, your, to your mind. Um, so h- how do you do this? H- how do you forgive? What are some distinctions that can be made, particularly if you're just struggling, you, just, you, you don't want to make that decision, and you feel like you can never get to the point where you can? Uh, some things here that might, that might help you. So h- how do you forgive? Um, the first is this distinguish between forgiveness and consequences okay to to forgive somebody is not to relinquish that person from the consequences of the sin that he or she has committed really interesting proverb here look at this proverb 1919 19, a hot tempered man must pay the penalty if you rescue him you'll have to do it again See what this proverb is saying? It's, you know, a hot-tempered man who just loses control of himself over and over again, you just keep bailing him out, you're just going to have to bail him out over and over again. In other words, he's not learning his lesson because he hasn't paid the penalty. He hasn't had to deal with the consequences. Now, this verse isn't saying that you shouldn't forgive the person. It's saying that consequences can teach And sometimes it's good to allow the consequences to be paid. A teenager who crashes the car for the third time, maybe that teen's going to have to pay for those damages. That doesn't mean you're not forgiving, but it means they might have to pay the consequences. A a treasurer of a company who steals a bunch of money, um, you can forgive that person and require that that person repay what he or she stole. An employee who is just constantly negligent on the job. You can forgive that person for that and also dismiss that person from his or her position. And that's not being necessarily unforgiving. There are certain consequences that are appropriate. And a biblical example of this would be David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba. We heard from that passage, I think it was last Sunday, where Nathan comes to David, confronts David with his sin. David confesses his sin. He says, You're right. I committed adultery, I had the woman's husband killed. He acknowledges the sin, and then Nathan looks at him and says, David, the Lord has put away your sin. You are forgiven. God's not holding any hostility against you. You are the recipient of grace, David. But then he goes on and he says, but the child that's coming from this adulterous relationship will die. The child will die. There's a consequence to be paid even though the sin was forgiven. So there is a difference here that we need to hold in mind. I think sometimes there might be a tendency for us to kind of pay the consequences for somebody, thinking that's an example of forgiveness, but then we withhold our affection from the person. We punish the person relationally while we pay the consequence, the money or whatever that might have been lost, I would suggest that, you know, maybe it should be the exact opposite. Make the person pay for what they did, but then draw close to the person. Don't penalize the person with relational separation. That's that's a lack of forgiveness. But having a person pay the consequences is not necessarily a lack of forgiveness. So make that distinction. Secondly, (laughs) renounce sinful attitudes and expectations. There's sometimes we withhold forgiveness because, you know, once again, we're we're wanting the person to pay for their forgiveness. We we want that person to do something to, to earn it, and so we'll hold it over their heads to require them to do that. Or we will expect some kind of a guarantee from the person. I'm not going to forgive you until you guarantee me that this is never going to happen again. (laughs) Well, I think those are unrealistic attitudes and expectations. We just have to go to the gospel. You know, God doesn't make us pay for our forgiveness, forgiveness we've received from Him, right? We know that. But also know that our salvation is not based on any guarantee that we give to God. Justification is not by guarantee alone, It's it's through faith alone, right? It's faith. We put faith in Jesus. But we can't make any guarantee to God we're not going to do this sin or that sin again. And God doesn't expect us to make that guarantee. Isn't that wonderful that He forgives us without expecting us to make a guarantee? He forgives us knowing full well that we're going to do it again and forgives us anyway. So renounce sinful attitudes and expectations. Third, recognize... God's sovereignty. That's why we heard from Genesis chapter 50. Uh, You know the story of Joseph. I mean, Joseph's brothers treated him in such an egregiously mean and cold and heartless way, sold him into slavery, dismissed him from the family. Um, You know, Joseph had every reason in the world to hold a hard heart against those guys, to put them in prison, to have them executed. He had all sorts of options at his disposal. And yet what Joseph says is, you know, God meant this for good. <laughs> Again, he didn't excuse their sin, right? You meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. But he says this is under God's sovereignty. This, God, God planned this. He has a good purpose in this. Whatever personal conflict you're involved in right now, whatever it is, it's in your life because God intended it to be. Because He's teaching you. He's shaping you. This is the means by which God is growing you into Christ likeness. As uncomfortable and as painful as it is, it's all under the sway of God's sovereign control. Here's how Ken Sandy says it. God may not tell us everything we want to know about the painful events of life. Lots of things we want to know. Why is this happening? <clears throat> but He has already told us all we need to know. The Bible tells us that God is both sovereign and good so we can be sure that whatever He has brought into our lives can be used to glorify Him, to benefit others, and to help us grow. And then one more thing about how we forgive or how we get over the reasons that we might come up with to withhold forgiveness is to act as if forgiveness is real. What I mean by that is act, even though you don't feel like forgiving, even though it's not in your heart, to to act as if you really did forgive. Here's the way C.S. Lewis said, he said, you know, don't worry so much about whether you love your neighbor or not. Just start loving him, and you will love your neighbor. So don't worry so much about, you know, am I really forgiving this person or not? Is my heart As forgiving as it should be, instead of dwelling on that, just act as if your heart did. And you know what you'll find is that your heart will follow. Very similar to the Carla Faye Tucker story. Another story that kind of illustrates this um, Thomas Edison. Here's a story that was told about Thomas Edison, invents the light bulb. It takes him hundreds of hours to get this first light bulb made and finally gets the thing done. And he hands it to an errand boy and he says, please take that upstairs to the workroom or something like that. And so the errand boy takes a light bulb and he starts running up the stairs and he trips and he falls and breaks the light bulb. It took him hundreds of hours to make this thing. So Thomas Edison goes back in the workshop, spends several days preparing another light bulb, finally gets it done, goes back to the errand boy and says, here, please take this up to the workroom. No mention of what he did in the past. It's just a demonstration that what you did in the past is forgiven. And I'm going to show you by my deeds that you are forgiven. And who knows how Thomas Edison felt at the time. He was probably pretty irritated, I would guess. But he was acting as if forgiveness was real. And what an impact that must have made on that Aaron boy. Well, nonetheless, I know perhaps... What some of you are thinking is, you know, there's just still, in my situation, I, I, I just don't know where the power to forgive is, is going to come from. I mean, I think all of us know, as Christians, we know that we, we should forgive. We know it's the Christian thing to do. It's not too hard to understand verse 13. Forgive each other. Okay, we get that. But for some of us, we, we just... To be quite honest, we just can't. We just can't do it. The, the wounds are too deep. The memories are too vivid. The pain is too paralyzing. But what Paul tells us here is something else. Forgiving each other, he says, and then there's a very important phrase after that, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's giving us some, some power here. He's not just saying, okay, forgive just out of uh, your your just bare-bone willpower. What he says is, no, forgive, but, but remember that you're to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. This is, this is the model. This is the source of the power and the grace that you're going to need to be able to do this. As the Lord has forgiven you. So, what does that mean? And I, I know what you're all thinking. It's like, yeah, okay, Jesus has forgiven us for our sins, but I think we need, a, we need a more vivid picture of that to really bring this home. And Jesus gives that to us. In Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35, He tells the parable of the ungrateful servant. And that parable, that story, is a, it's a vivid story of what Paul is talking about here forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us. And here's something very interesting. Do you know that that parable comes right after last week's passage where Jesus commands us to go and show someone his fault and to bring others along? And then right after that is the parable of the ungrateful servant. It's like Jesus knew, okay, you're going to go and you're going to confront people and they're going to confess sin, they're going to show repentance, and now you're going to have to forgive. And so you're not going to be able to do that. It's going to be really hard, and so he tells this parable. This parable of the ungrateful servant. I'm just going to share it with you here real, real quickly. Um, here, here's the story. Jesus tells. Uh, there's a king, and this king wants to settle debts with his servants. And he comes across this particular servant. We'll call him Servant A. And this Servant A owes 10,000 talents to this king. Now, that, that amount, 10,000 talents, is an astronomical figure. It's impossible to calculate. Uh, 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek language. Th- this amount equaled to mil- billions, probably trillions of dollars, the amount of money that would be generated by numerous nations, the gross national product of countless nations. It- it's just something beyond comprehension. And that's what this servant owes this king. And the servant, upon hearing that the king is coming to him, begs for mercy, it says. And the king responds by saying, okay, your debt is forgiven. And he doesn't say, okay, well, I'll defer your debt, I'll give you a six-month grace period, and then you can pay, or I'll put you in prison until you you... know, he just says, your debt's forgiven. He just clears it, just wipes it out, this astronomical debt. Well, then the story goes on. And the servant goes, and he finds another servant. He finds servant B. And servant B owes servant A some money, and the story says that he owes 100 denarii. Now, that's, that's not a small amount. It's probably like a third of a year's work, about a third of a year's salary. Okay, it's, 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 it's a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to the previous debt. I mean, it's thousands of times smaller than the debt forgiven the first servant. Well, what does this second servant do. He does the same thing the first servant did. He begs for mercy. And servant A, as this servant in his debt begs for mercy, says, pay up. Reaches out and chokes the man and puts him in prison. Refuses forgiveness. Well, the king finds out. The king finds out what happened. And at the end of the parable, the king says this. Then his master summoned him and said to him. So the master, that's the king, saying this to the servant. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Isn't that what Paul is saying? Forgiving each other? As the Lord has forgiven you, do you get get the point here? The point of this is simply this, that no matter how much you've been offended or how much you've been hurt, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, the offenses that you've received could be very severe. But the point of this parable, what Jesus seems to be saying, is that you have been forgiven so much more in the gospel than you will ever ever be required to forgive that's the point of the parable you have been forgiven so much more in the gospel than you will ever be required to forgive Christopher Ash says it this way British preacher however much we have been a victim before God we are offender a thousand times more now that's a hard thing to hear particularly if you've been seriously offended, abused. But that this is what Jesus is saying. And the problem that we have, the reason that we're so slow to forgive is that we just don't believe this. That's that's the problem. We don't believe it. We don't believe that our sins are that serious and we don't believe that they're that numerous. We don't believe that the more we believe that, the more we grasp the seriousness of our sins, the, the, the more wonderful, the bigger, the larger grace will seem. The less we give account of our sin, the less we think we offended God, the smaller the grace we have received will seem, and then the less grace that we're going to have to give those to those who have offended us. So here, here's my suggestion. If you're struggling with forgiveness in your life, Take a couple of days and make a running list of all of your sins against God. Just write them down. Your ungratefulness, pride, self-centeredness, lust, perhaps adultery, uncontrolled temper, repeated idolatry, bitterness, resentment, boredom with God's Word, rejection of the leading of His Spirit... Refusal to pray, stinginess, materialism, unbelief, slander, gluttony, jealousy, envy. Just start writing that list down. Take a couple of days. Watch how big it gets. (laughs) And then read this passage Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Reflect on that, that Jesus Christ paid the debt that He didn't owe to free you from the debt you could not pay. Meditate on that. Take that into your life. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, that God has... Called us to forgive the inexcusable in others because he 's forgiven the inexcusable in us. This is what Paul is telling us. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. This parable helps to bring bring this home and this is my prayer, and I hope it 's your prayer also that here at New life that we would be peacemakers uh, that we would forgive as the Lord has forgiven us because if by God's grace and his spirit that is happening here, people will come and they'll be part of this church and they'll say, surely God is in this place. When forgiveness like that takes place, that's, that's the conclusion that we have to draw. God is in this place. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that you have forgiven us all of our debts. And we pray by your spirit that you give us the grace to forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.